0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I certainly hope that our topics are encouraging you to have these extremely important conversations with your friends and family. My name is Dustin Smith and as always I'll be your host This here is episode 238, entitled, Who is the Seed of the Woman? In this week's episode, we will begin a new series in which we will explore passages from the Old Testament, that is, from the Hebrew Bible, passages that allegedly predict the coming of Israel's Messiah, these messianic prophecies, as they're called, will be evaluated in this ongoing series for what they have to say about the person of Christ, his origins, his humanity, his role, and most importantly, his relationship with Israel's God. This week, we will start at the beginning in the book of Genesis by looking at the so-called Protoevangelion, which is the title used to describe this week's passage, Genesis 3.15, which is referred to as the first telling of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, it discusses the seed of the woman that is going to bruise the serpent's head. And many people, readers of the Bible included, feel that this is the first passage within the Old Testament that describes the coming Messiah's victory over Satan. Now here are some questions that I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15 and why is this answer not as simple as we might have thought? Second, What are we to make of the other seed in the passage, namely the seed of the serpent? Third, at what point precisely do early Christians begin to quote Genesis 3.15 as a direct reference to Christ? And lastly, how strong are the allusions to this passage within the New Testament? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So in order to get some context, we'll read a couple of verses prior to our target passage. So we're in Genesis chapter 3, and let's start in verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's Genesis three verses nine through fifteen. So as we can see there in Genesis three fifteen, we have a curse that's coming upon this serpent, the serpent that, according to the story, has deceived Eve into eating of the tree that God has commanded Adam and Eve to not partake of, and the curse involves enmity between the serpent and the woman, and also enmity between your seed, namely between the seed of the serpent and her seed. And then it goes on to say that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent on the head, and that the serpent is going to bruise him, namely the seed on the heel. This makes sense because... Snakes are slithering on the ground, and snakes are more likely, if they are going to be attacking a human being, or poisonous, they will be attacking at the heel. And human beings, obviously being taller and much stronger, are going to strike the serpents upon their heads. That just makes sense. Now, this particular passage is not as straightforward as we might have thought it might sound as if that there's going to be a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the woman, which certainly is going to be a human being. It's a member of the human race. It's quite clear within Genesis chapter 3 that the woman is named Eve, and then it goes to explain Eve's name, which in Hebrew actually more has to do with life, because she is the mother of all living. So her descendants are going to be natural human descendants that come forth from her. And so many people just read the seed as a single individual. The seed that is going to bruise the serpent on the head. But what are we to do with this other seed? There's enmity between the seed of the serpent and also the seed of the woman. It's this seed of the serpent that gets left out of nearly every conversation that I've had with others about this particular passage. I think at the most basic level, what we can say is that this passage, which is actually, we have to remember, is a curse that is given to this particular serpent. How we come up with the fact that it is the first gospel when it is in fact a curse is a little interesting. We'll leave that aside for now. But the sense there is that there is going to be enmity, there's going to be hostilities between human descendants of the woman and, of course, descendants of this particular serpent. Now, we should make clear that, at least in Genesis chapter 3, the identity of this serpent is not clearly stated. It is clear that in Jewish and Christian sources, this serpent is later understood and declared to be Satan, the devil. But that's not what the author of Genesis is actually saying here. The serpent could be representative of something, but the identity is not explicitly stated. That's not to say that I don't regard it as the devil and Satan. I'm just pointing out that Genesis doesn't actually give us that information. That information is quite explicit in other places, like the book of Revelation. Now, I mentioned this particular passage in my book, The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus, but the information that I felt that I could give about Genesis 3.15 in the book was very minimal. I'm going to read to you from the book in which I discuss this particular passage, starting on page 128. The first passage I wish to examine is Genesis 3.15. This passage details how the seed of the woman will victoriously crush the head of the serpent's offspring. Many of the Jewish Targums identified the woman's seed as King Messiah. This messianic interpretation was later picked up by Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the 2nd century common era. This point, which bears importance for the study, is in fact that the expectation of the Messiah was tied to Eve's human descendant, end quote. So at the time of the writing of the Son of God book, all that I could say was that this particular passage was picked up by some early Jewish Targums, and they would interpret it messianically, specifically that the seed is in reference to the King Messiah. And I also was able to point out that two early Christian authors, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, explicitly use this passage in reference to Jesus Christ. Now Justin Martyr wrote around the year 160 and Irenaeus about 20 years later in 180 AD. So Those authors are quite distant from the writings of the New Testament. And so we really need to kind of explore this passage and to think whether the seed of the woman is in reference to a single figure, namely to the one person who is going to strike the serpent, and of course, this would naturally assume that the seed of the serpent is also going to be a single figure. The problem, though, is that the Hebrew noun zerah, translated as seed, is often used in the sense of a collective, to where the seed of the woman would mean the woman's collective offspring, as in all of humanity. And this, of course, would mean that the seed of the serpent would be the serpent's collective offspring all of the snakes. And this would mean that the passage more generally is speaking about humanity's ongoing conflict and frustration with serpents and snakes. Now we could suggest, and I think quite rightly, that the Messiah is included among all of humanity. But it's I think a little bit wrongheaded to read this passage and to assume that this basic word seed, which is elsewhere used in Genesis to refer to all of Abraham's family, all of Isaac's family, all of Jacob's family, not to a particular individual. It doesn't say son. It says seed, namely offspring. I think it's much more likely to use that as a collective word in reference to the offspring of Eve. And of course, the Messiah would be included in that because the Messiah is also a human being that descends from Eve. So we're not losing the Messianic interpretation. I'm just simply pointing out that this passage is not as straightforward as we might have thought. And we need to acknowledge that. It's a little bit more complex. And I think the sense of the complexity can be shown in the fact that the New Testament authors aren't quite sure what to do with it. And so I want to move on to seeing how the New Testament alludes to, cites, quotes, or draws inspiration from Genesis 3.15. So that's going to be our second point to date. Point number two is suggested New Testament passages alluding to Genesis 3.15. Now, I'm just going to come out and say, I don't think that there's any New Testament passage that directly, unambiguously quotes Genesis 3.15, at least word for word, either in the Hebrew or in the Greek translation. We have allusions, we have some echoes, but the fact that it's not explicitly cited seems to at least make us draw some interesting conclusions about how this passage was used by early Christians, at least how early it was used in a most explicit way. We know that it was explicitly used at the end of the second century with Justin Martyr and with Irenaeus. Let's look at the New Testament evidence. So I want to look at Romans 16, verse 20, Romans 16:20, which says that the God of peace will soon crush satan under your feet romans 16 verse 20 so here we have the crushing of satan under your feet and the pronoun there your is plural indicating the readers of rome and naturally any other person that is reading the book of romans so this seems to be an allusion to genesis three fifteen. it's not a direct quote but we have a lot of the same themes. We have this implied conflict between the people of God on one hand and Satan on the other. We have the sense of the crushing of Satan, which is an interpretation quite explicitly of the serpent. The serpent there, according to Paul, is Satan. And the crushing would naturally happen on the head. And also we have the sense of of the feet being involved, but it's difficult to know whether the feet are stepping on Satan that's causing the act of being crushed, or if it's more of the metaphor of Satan being under someone's feet in the sense that Satan is submitting to it. Those who have the feet are demonstrating their authority and their kingship, and their rule over this particular power. Now, the fact that the feet are second person, plural, indicating that this is collectively the feet of the Roman readers, this, of course, suggests that the seat of the woman is not in reference to a single figure, a single person who is the offspring but again that more collective the offspring of humanity multiple persons not a single person now what's also interesting here is the unavoidable fact that god is the one crushing satan under your feet and this is the god of peace in every occurrence of the god of peace within paul and it shows up elsewhere in romans it shows up in Philippians, it shows up in Thessalonians it is unambiguously a reference to God the Father but it's God the Father that seems to be orchestrating the crushing of Satan, but it's done under the feet of humanity so the Messiah is not explicitly mentioned here but I do think that this is an allusion to Genesis 3.15, but While the New Testament writers are alluding to it, they're not using it in a way that makes it a messianic prophecy. It doesn't say anything about Jesus doing this. In fact, the Messiah isn't even mentioned here. It's God, ultimately, the one who is orchestrating this. So it shows Genesis 3.15 used in the New Testament, but not quite in a messianic way. They're not looking at this passage from Genesis 3.15 and saying this is predicting what The coming Messiah is going to do. Another passage that supposedly references Genesis three hundred fifteen is Hebrews chapter two verse fourteen. Hebrews two hundred fourteen says therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is, the devil. Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 14. So some interpreters, a minority, feel that this passage also alludes to Genesis 3.15. Now we can see some common themes. We can see this shared humanity with the Messiah and the rest of the children, the flesh and blood, indicating that the Messiah is a genuine human being. He is a man, he's a remember the human race, we can see that the Messiah here is rendering powerless the one that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And of course, the Messiah had to do this by going through death. One might conclude that this is indicating that the serpent has struck this particular seed, namely the Messiah, bringing him to death but that through death the messiah is able to render powerless the devil but granted to be struck at the heel by a serpent doesn't indicate that you're going to die to be struck on the head means a mortal blow so i'm not exactly sure that this is actually citing from genesis 3:15 i know some people feel that way but i just think that this is just talking about the messiah who shares humanity with the rest of human beings, and that through dying he is going to remove the power of the devil. But I don't think that this is citing Genesis 3.15. I know some people think that, but I think that that suggestion is a little bit far-fetched based on the evidence here. Now, I do think there's one particular passage that does talk about the seed of the woman, and the conflict with the serpent, and the passage goes on to talk about the descendants of the serpent, and the passage also talks about Jesus. So it's an interesting passage, and it doesn't get discussed as much. I think, actually, this particular passage is the most messianic way of talking about Genesis 3.15. So this is going to be our third and final point. Point number three, the most likely New Testament passage, citing Genesis 3.15. Drum roll, please. It actually is in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 17. Now hear me out. Allow me to make a case for this. In Revelation 12.17, it says that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's Revelation 12, verse 17. Now, you might look at this passage and say, well, it doesn't talk about the seed of the woman, but I would like to make the suggestion that it actually does. Because in Revelation 12, 17, the reference to the rest of the woman's children in Greek is not the word tekna, the typical word that you would use for children. It actually Is the word spermatos, spermatos optis, her seed, her offspring, which in fact is the Greek word for offspring that is used in the Septuagint of Genesis 315. So now we have some actual direct language that's being quoted. In fact, Revelation 1217 would be more accurately translated to say that the dragon went off to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here we have the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is collectively multiple people. They are defined as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we know that they're Christians because they maintain the testimony of Jesus, that is, Jesus' testimony that he taught, his message of the kingdom of God. So they're identified with Jesus in that sense. They're imitating Jesus in that sense. And what's interesting is that the very next passage, this is at the end of Revelation chapter 12, the next passage is in chapter 13, verse 1, to where the dragon is able to draw up two different beasts one from the sea and one from the land indicating the offspring of the dragon or at least the followers of the dragon in some sort of metaphorical sense so we have the dragon which is elsewhere described as the serpent of old satan and the devil Revelation explicitly makes that point. The dragon, of course, is a serpent-like creature. I think that imagery is pretty strong. So we have, I think, all of the elements of Genesis 3.15. We have the serpent. And the serpent goes on to demonstrate the type of offspring that it has. We have the woman. And in this particular passage, the woman references the people of God. I should point that out. The woman is not a reference to to Eve. It's the people of God that are being persecuted by the dragon. And the seed of the woman are those that are described as holding the testimony of Jesus and keeping God's commands. So we have the seed of the serpent. We have the seed of the woman. The woman is redefined here. And that's okay. Revelation almost always reuses passages from the Old Testament for new and deliberate purposes that pertain to the original readers of the book of Revelation. So I think this is the closest reference to Genesis 3.15 that we have in the New Testament, and yet it's not actually a messianic prophecy. It's not saying anything about Jesus in particular, other than the fact that the seed of the woman are those who maintain Jesus' gospel. They hold fast to Jesus' testimony. So, I don't think that there's actually any verse in the New Testament that is going to cite Genesis 3.15 in a way that is messianic. Now, we've seen places that talk about Genesis 3.15. I think Romans 16 verse 20 and Revelation 12.17 do reference Genesis 3.15. I'm not so sure about Hebrews 2.14. So, Genesis 3.15 is used but I don't think it's used messianically. We know it was used messianically by some Jewish sources, but they don't interpret the Messiah there in a Christian sense. Now, Revelation is written around the year 90, and Justin Martyr is not going to interpret Genesis 3.15 messianically for another 70 years. And Irenaeus, another 90 years. It's a long time. might not feel like a long time, but it's a long time. Now, I do want to point out that a passage from the Old Testament doesn't have to be explicitly quoted in the New Testament in order for it to be understood as legitimately describing the coming Messianic King. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament that don't get directly cited in the New Testament, but it's very clear, and I think unambiguous, that they are looking forward to this future Messianic ruler. We'll see many of those in our coming studies. But I think when it comes to Genesis 3.15, we have to admit that the New Testament doesn't directly make an issue out of this. Now, even though I'm trying to point out that through some careful reasoning, that there's a lot that we cannot say about this passage, what can we say about Genesis 3.15 and what it says about the Messiah, his role, his relationship to God? Well, I think we can pretty clearly say that Genesis 3.15 is pointing to the fact that the one who is going to defeat the serpent, and of course engage with the seed of the serpent, these are members of the human race. They are descendants of Eve. And of course we can see from the New Testament that the one who has defeated the serpent, the one who's defeated Satan, the devil, is in fact Jesus who is a man, who's a member of the human race. So you can put two and two together, and you can make those conclusions. So we can see that the Messiah is naturally going to be a human being, a man, a member of the human race completely. We can see that. What does it say about the relationship of the seed of the woman and Israel's God? Well, Yahweh, of course, is making this curse upon the serpent. In Genesis 3.15 So naturally the seed of the woman is going to be distinguished from the one giving the curse which is the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. So there's no suggestion there that the seed of the woman or at least a member of the seed of the woman is going to be Yahweh himself that is completely absent from Genesis chapter 3 So I think that's all we can say about this particular passage. Was it understood messianically by early Christians? Yes. Was it understood messianically by the authors of the New Testament? Probably not. I think that's the most that we can say about this. So there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue looking through Old Testament messianic prophecies in order to evaluate them on what they have to say about the person of Messiah his role, and, of course, his relationship with the God of Israel. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound, non-negotiable, important truths about God's oneness and unity, and, of course, about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check out the description of this podcast for a link to PayPal. And as a reminder from the announcement from last week, all supporters of the podcast get access to my master's level course on the Gospel of John, which is going to be 30 hours of video content. For those that have already engaged with this particular promotion. They've already had great things to say about what they've been viewing, so that offer is still available if you want to become a supporter. So reach out to me through email or through DMs, and we will work out a way to get these links over to you. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.